Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. Welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to be digging into, of course, into the brain, but into a lot of issues around optometry and vision and brain health, concussion. We're going to be talking, yes, a lot about assessment. Yes, a lot about evaluation, but also a lot about treatment and innovation in treatment. We will be digging into the issues of vision and the brain, vision and concussion, and what some of the methods are out there that are available to help to treat these conditions. So it's really the first time on the podcast that we've dug into this, what is a very meaty topic. So I'm excited to have Dr. Thies with us here today, uh, Dr. Jacqueline Thies. She is coming to us from Virginia, but has a, a long history on the West Coast as well in California and is, is going to be you know talking a lot about functional vision, but also sharing a really interesting perspective of what led her into this work. And that's part of where we really kind of connected was around her personal connection to some of this work. So for people listening today, I, I really encourage you to listen up, to learn, because we're all going to learn today. And to also, if this episode really has value for you, to share it with someone in your network that might need to hear the wisdom of Dr. Thies. So here we go. We're going to get started with this. So anything that you wanted to add to your intro? No, I think we're good. I mean, I'm sure we'll cover stuff as we go along. <laughs> <laughs> of course we will. Of course we will. So for people that are listening, we have a lot of people that listen to this who may have suffered concussions themselves. We also have a lot of occupational therapists who want to learn more about the brain and recovery. Given your lens is one of kind of obviously vision and the brain, what's a main message you'd want for people to better understand in the brain health world about the brain and vision? I think one of the things that needs to be understood with the brain and vision is that they are incredibly intertwined with each other. There is not a single lobe of the brain that is not some way, shape, and form involved in vision. And so I think people are not referring enough for a thorough evaluation when people have persistent concussion symptoms to rule out a vision problem. And then the other thing that will frustrate me as well is sometimes you'll send someone for vision complaints and they'll have a normal quote unquote eyeball exam and have some issues with the eyes that go undiagnosed. And so a lot of it is education of kind of disease state education for eye care providers, as well as primary care providers and treatment providers so that we know when to refer, who to refer, how to refer. And then as you mentioned, how to treat it. So. Yeah, for sure. For sure. When we think about that, you mentioned something that I think is really interesting and very relevant is you you mention oftentimes a kind of static approach to assessment instead of functional. And maybe if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit to that, because we see that in so many different domains of brain health. And maybe talk a little bit more about that, because if we see an eye professional, not all eye professionals are the same, right? And maybe you could help people understand the differences in them. But maybe talk a little bit more to that, because I think it's something that is often lost on many of us. 
Yeah. So I think first we'll start kind of what are the different types of eye care providers. So the first would be an optometrist. So an optometrist is not just glasses and contacts. So we are essentially the primary eye care physician for the eyes. So we diagnose and treat a lot of medical conditions with the eyes. So we look at the refractive surface, but we also take a look inside of the eye at the retina. And then we also look at eye movements. So optometry school is four years of training after you do your graduate bachelor's Mm -hmm. science degree. And then some of us actually continue to do an additional one or two years of residency and fellowship training to specialize in pediatrics or neurooptometry, contact lenses, things like that. So neurooptometry is the field looking at how vision functions with the brain. And so that's kind of where my residency was trained in. And and majority of what I did was ocular motor or how the eyes move training, understanding how the eyes move. And one of the things that always fascinates me is everything that we do is so dynamic. There is nothing that we do in the real world that doesn't involve our eyes moving constantly. And yet the exam evaluation from a typical ophthalmologist or optometrist is a very static exam, right? Just like you mentioned. So someone comes in with a visual complaint, they'll say, you know, things just seem fuzzy. That's usually the, right, the concussion. It's kind of fuzzy. It's not blurry. It's just fuzzy on the edges. Um, and we check you on the eye chart. You're 2020. We take a look at your eye health while you're not moving your eyeball and it looks great. And then we're kind of like, well, you look good. And, and as an eye care provider, I think they're, we love telling people they're normal, but right. for the patient that's a concussion, I say this as someone who was that person as the concussion, it's very frustrating to know that your vision's not functionally normal and have someone tell you it's fine. <laughs> and so the difference to go back, an ophthalmologist is also an eye care physician. They are a medical doctor as well, and they do surgery. So they went to medical school for four years and then did a three to five year surgical fellowship. And mm-hmm. so a lot of times you know, as a ophthalmologist, and this is not, I think the world of ophthalmologists, but they think of things through a surgical and medical lens because that's their training. And so when a concussion comes in the door and they have a visual complaint, they're going to look at the eye and see, is there something medically wrong with the eye that I can medically or surgically fix? And oftentimes there's not, it's usually a functional issue. And so they'll reassure the patient it's fine and and it's not fine for them. So from a neurooptometry perspective, What we look at is, okay, so the patients come to me and oftentimes they've already seen an optometrist and an ophthalmologist, maybe a couple of them even. And when they come to see me, what I'm looking at is, okay, so the eyeballs are healthy and you see quote unquote 2020 with your glasses. How do you see while they're moving? And not only that, but while your eyes are moving quickly or slowly or tracking, how does it make you feel? And oftentimes in concussion, and that's what gets missed is that the eyes are provoking physical symptoms. They're provoking dizziness. They're provoking nausea. And the eyes also interplay with the ears and the neck. And that's the other thing, right? Where you had mentioned physical therapists. I work with a physical therapist in our office and constantly we're working together because when you're moving your eyes and not moving your head, your neck's engaged. And when you're moving your eyes and your head, your ears and vestibular system are engaged. Mm. So they are constantly intertwined with each other. And that's kind of the difference of a functional versus a structural exam. I agree the structure is fine, but why aren't they functioning well? Oh, that's so good. And for people that are listening, then really listen back to what was just said there is get a better understanding as to the role of each professional that you're working with. Because I think a lot of us can fall into that situation where we assume the person who's seeing us may know it all. And the best medical professionals out there are the ones who continue to ask questions and try to seek to better understand. But understanding the lens, uh, 
that each of us are, are bringing to each situation is very, very important, I think. And we see that a lot, obviously, in the occupational therapy setting, as we've talked about before, but also in the physical therapy and now into the vision therapy side of it. Now, for some people, you talked a little bit about ocular motor. Right. And this is something that for some may be a new term and vision therapy might be a newer thing. But this gives me a great sense of optimism. And would you mind sharing a little bit about what those two things are, meaning ocular motor and vision therapy? Sure. So ocular motor is how the eyes move. It seems like they would be very easy to move. But if you think about it from a functional standpoint, it's very complicated. So that's actually the main part of what uses every lobe of the brain is eye movement because you need to plan where the eyes are going based off of what you see, based off off of your intention and what you want to do with your eyes. You simultaneously need to interpret what you're seeing. It is a very fast and instantaneous process. You're constantly regulating light levels and things like that, even when you're moving your eyes. So it's very intricate in the way that you do it. And there's multiple types. So in concussion or brain injury, there's about seven different eye movements we're looking at. So saccades, which would be your ability to move your eyes from point A to point B. Pursuits, your ability to track something slowly while it's moving. Your vergence system, which is your ability to look up close and then far away and then far away and up close. Your focusing system, so accommodation is each eye's individual ability to actually zoom in and make something clear. And so oftentimes you'll have an asymmetric focusing system after you've had a head injury, which is odd, but it's Mm -hmm. a very big symptom for people. And then we're also looking at your vestibular ocular reflex or how your eyes and ears move together, as well as your cervical ocular reflex. So how they're all communicating with each other. And then the big one, not well researched because it's hard to really diagnostically evaluate, but fixation. It takes a lot of attention and it takes a lot of constant firing of muscles to make sure that you're still looking at something that you're looking at. So that's kind of the ocular motor system in general. And then Vision therapy is a wonderfully controversial topic. Yes. And there's many reasons for this. I think vision therapy, number one, it's an umbrella term. I think that's what makes it frustrating, both as a provider, but also as a patient. Because when someone says like, oh, you need vision therapy, well, what type, right? And and there are so many types of vision therapy. So I do what's called orthoptics, which is ocular motor-based vision therapy. And I do that because it's evidence-based. There have been clinical trials looking at how to do eye movement therapy for convergence deficits, and it's based in science and and had placebo controls and things like that. So we know it works, which is exciting. It doesn't mean that other types of vision therapy don't work, but there's this huge gap in scientific evidence on how vision therapy works and if it works. And it doesn't mean that there's evidence saying it doesn't work. I think that's what people are always say. Oh, there's no evidence for it. Well, yeah, but there's no evidence against it either necessarily, but that's the whole rehab space. And I think that's where, you know, some people will villainize vision therapy. I'm like, There's a lot of physical therapy and occupational therapy techniques that work that are not evidence-based. And it's it's just kind of based off of clinical expertise usually. So for when it comes to vision therapy, the other thing that I like to say too is sometimes I'll have patients and they'll be like, oh, I've already done vision therapy. I'm like, oh, who'd you do it with? And they'll say like, oh, vestibular PT. Like, that's cool. You did vestibular PT. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) They're not the same. And it doesn't, one doesn't replace the other. They're often balance each other out. You, a lot of patients need to do both. The ears rehab very differently than the eyes. So sometimes you're doing similar exercises, but in a different, maybe rep scheme or speed and things like Mm -hmm. that. So you can get improvements from both. Yeah. 
Uh, and I think that's very, very well explained because we've had PTs on previously who've talked a lot about vestibular PT, but it's nice to have you explain that from the perspective of optometry. When we think about this space, you know, we do hear a lot out there in the public domain about concussion, about brain injuries, about research, about treatment, about lack of treatment about using certain practices off-label to treat people with brain injury. When you think about things that might frustrate you about this work, are there one or maybe two things in the world of brain health that cause a level of frustration for you? Given that also, I mean, and we'll dig into this a little bit later, you have great personal experience with this as well as professionally. Yeah. I think what hurts me a lot too is when I'll have a patient and they'll be getting better and they'll go to a provider who says, oh, well, the therapy you're doing, I don't think that's working. And you're like, well, that's frustrating (laughs) because the patient's actually getting better. And I understand there's a big gap and this is going to be a frustration for every clinician and whatever their passion space is. There's a big gap between the bench and the bedside. So anytime that something changes in science, it'll take about 10 to 15 years before all clinicians are really on board with that change. And so as a provider who does clinical research, I'm on the forefront of a lot of what's changing on the bench side, which means I can very quickly bring it into the bedside. But that's not how it's going to work with every other provider. It's going to have to change how people are taught in school. And then schools are going to have to do continuing education. And then that provider has to go to that education. So there's just a big gap in knowledge. And I always find that frustrating, but that's in everything. It's not just brain injury. But the best example I can give is vision therapy or vestibular therapy in concussion, because it wasn't even, what, 2013, so less than a decade ago, we weren't actively treating concussions. You know, we were passively, let's just have you sit in a dark room and avoid everything and see how long it takes to get better. And there was this monumental paper that came out uh, less than a decade ago that said, hey, by the way, if you do that, people actually don't get better very quickly. It can make them worse. And hey, if you actively identify they have a vision, vestibular, cognitive problem and you treat them with vision therapy, PT and OT, they'll get better faster. And that was huge in my management, I was doing clinical research at the time this paper came out and we changed our complete paradigm for treatment in brain injury when this paper came out. And then the thing that frustrates me though, is it's 10 years out. So for me, it's, it's common knowledge, but it's still not common knowledge for a lot of patients as well as a lot of providers. Yeah. And, and, and that's part of what we try to do with this podcast is share the information, not just on the research side, which is so important, but on the clinical side as well. And trying to bring those two worlds together is hard and it takes time and it takes focus and it takes effort and it takes education. So that's why it's so great to have people like yourself on here to share the perspective. Because it has to be so frustrating when something is working. And yet the lines of communication aren't where they need to be. This is where I love the idea, the concept. I know it's happening in some places of having the EMR in a position where people are shared charting and really sharing that patient and together working to come up with the right, not multidisciplinary, but truly interdisciplinary plan to give the best care possible to that patient. Because I think we deserve that. And I think not only do we deserve that, but we do have the systems in place to provide care in that way. Well, and I think particularly for people who have a brain injury or some type of brain neurodegenerative disease where you have trouble remembering things, 
having the onus on the patient to remember what providers they're supposed to be seeing, who they need to see, what they're supposed to do. Oh, and can you tell this provider that I saw this and tell them this? You know, it's it's impossible and, and patients never really accurately will tell the provider the right thing anyways. So but you had mentioned I worked in California. When I worked in California, I worked at Kaiser Permanente, which is an HMO. And one of my favorite things about it was this open EMR. And so my patient could go to neuropsych And I had the luxury of being able to read the neuropsych's entire report, you know, obviously if it was public or the PT's entire Mm -hmm. report, and I could Mm -hmm. read what I needed from it. And the beauty of it is it didn't take any extra work of the clinician. Because that's the other thing is that as, as much as we want integrated care, it takes me time to send a note later at the end of the day to every provider that you've ever seen and try to explain what I did. And and it takes a lot of my personal time to do that currently in my private practice. And when I was in an HMO system, everyone had access to it. It was no extra work for me. And yet if they needed to see it, they could read it and they could ask me questions. It was just a beautiful system. And I wish that was more universal in the way that it would, but of course a utopian healthcare philosophy for sure. (laughs) Maybe one day and in certain places, I think, like you said, it's, it's that gap. But if, if it can be generalized to a certain end of the population through it and they see the ROI of that sort of a model, we're going to make progress on that, I have to think, because it just makes sense. There's also something just being able to talk. So in my current practice, we're interdisciplinary. And what the nice way to say that is we get to talk about the patient behind their back without them there, which is so helpful for their healthcare sometimes. And there's certain things oh, yeah. that you might not write in their chart note, like, yeah, and I noticed this patient was really anxious. And then, you know, I talked to the PT, did you notice this patient was anxious? And they're like, yeah. And then they talked to the PM&R and the PM&R is like, well, I can fix that. And you're like, oh, good. Cause that would make them better faster. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, it's funny how that works, hey? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so w- when you think about this work, and again, part of where we started in this communication was you shared with me some remarkable experiences that you had that helped to shape some of your interest in this work. But when you think about, you know, you also mentioned some of the mentors you've had over your your time in this career. Is there one or two influences that you'd really want to point to that have really helped to shape your perspective and overall work? Mentors. I mean, I think we had talked about this. So when I first tried to do, so I wanted to go into brain injury as an optometrist since I was in college. Right. And every person that I told I wanted to do that told me that I couldn't do it. So would I say there was a mentor that was super helpful in the beginning? No, <laughs> because they all thought it was a small niche, right? They were right. like, oh, well, brain injury, like that's such a small niche population. What are you going to do with the other 90% of your work week? And, and I was very vehemently like, no, this is what I'm going to do. I think the niche is much bigger than people realize. So I think knowing what I really wanted to my true self, I think that was the most helpful. Yeah. And then what really has helped me honestly has been, there are certain providers that have helped me learn how to learn. So I can think of, there's one ophthalmologist I used to work with at Kaiser and he really taught me how to think outside the box and really think patient first. You know, what is the patient need? Are you going to order this test just to order the test? Are you ordering mm-hmm. the test? Cause it's going to change how you treat the patient and is it worth it? And I think mm-hmm. that way, instead of just thinking the way things are always done is really helpful. And then also I would say always surrounding myself with people who do things really well and in a different way than I do them is very helpful. So I have one of my favorite neurooptometrists. She works at Stanford. She and I disagree on so many things for treatment approaches. 
And yet the beauty of that is when I have a patient that's not getting better, I can call her and Mm. say, what would you do in this case? Because sometimes my method doesn't work, but hers does. Um, And so it's not a, it's not competitive in the sense of I'm right. You're right. It's, this is what works for me. And Hey, when my method doesn't work, how would you get around it? So I would say I've had a lot of mentors and it's more just having the people to bounce ideas off of, you know, that's so cool. I mean, that generalizes so well, but I think it's also quite rare. I think like surely all of us have egos, right? But there's a level of humility that is in that approach. And truly maybe it, it due in part to that mentor that you had over at, at Kaiser to say what's best for the patient. And maybe I don't know at all. Like I love what you said there because I think that is sadly lacking in so many places right now. It, it's actually doing harm. And, yeah. and that's the first rule, right? Is by, by thinking that you may know it all. Well, none of us do. So to, to be able to call someone up who's in a similar field who has a slightly different approach is absolutely brilliant. And to be able to do that, I mean, that's how it works in a lot of kind of clinical trial type settings. If we're looking to, you know, treat somebody with a very rare aggressive form of cancer, there's a reason they have these kind of dream teams, right? Where they look at those cases and say, okay, Here's what we're presenting with. Here's the response to treatment at this time. This is what we're seeing. What do you think? Okay, hematology, what do you think? Okay, certain subsets of tumor groups and oncology, what do you think? And then together, we can respectfully disagree and come up what we believe is the best course in a relatively democratic way. (laughs) So (laughs) that's really cool. I, I love that. I love that answer. And I think we need more of that. That's the thing. All I can say to you there is kudos because that's much more than like a personality thing, more so than just a medical thing. So kudos to you. Well, thank you. I think part of it, I I, I will take the compliment, but I think a lot of it actually is working in brain injury. I think I've been humbled by so many patient cases that you come to the point where you realize that there will always be a case that will be new and different. Something will somehow pop. You will never be like, oh, you may never have seen every single thing. And I think that's the beauty of the brain is brain injury is a humbling profession to be in for that reason. We don't have the diagnostic equipment. So a lot of it is based off of how patients feel or what they say, and that can change based off of every individual. So I think that's been the neat experience of it. And just like you said, you know, I think seeing people who I would hold in a higher respect than myself, like that ophthalmologist, yeah. you know, thinking to myself, he's the smartest person that I know. And then seeing <laughs> yeah. him looking yeah. stuff up yeah. in the yeah. bathroom, and I'm like, oh, you look stuff up still too. He's like, yeah, I don't know everything. But I'm like, well, this makes me feel better. <laughs> well, and I think that's just so great because it makes me think about when I first got into this work. Well, you know me, I'm a cognitive nerd and I was just so interested in this kind of non-invasive neuroplastic cog rehab. It's just my thing. But then like you, many of my mentors were all about what's best for the individual, right? And if their ADLs are activities of daily living are, you know, get up and wait for the data in, that's unfortunate. Like that, uh-huh. that makes me so sad, right? And that is a lot, as you know, a lot of people who have, are struggling out there in community right now, sadly, that is the reality for some. And I always want to be a part of providing options to more people that could that could exhaust the opportunity for more active rehab, not just physically, but cognitively. And I was actually on a call recently and speaking with a, with a colleague 
And they kind of fell into that same place where I used to fall into and still do the cognitive lens of, you know, this cog rehab. And, you know, the work we do is kind of really interdisciplinary. I was reminded of a woman who had glioblastoma, neurological cancer, and was in active treatment. And what we're doing on the cognitive side is theoretically, you know, non-invasive cog rehab. So if there are active tumors in different lobes, you could be creating more symptoms and, you know, that may not be good. So I remember saying to him, I'm like, well, yeah, this individual may not be able to do the cognitive piece right now, but how about the exercise? How about the mindfulness, right? How, How about tracking those SMART goals? Because what's the alternative? Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think that's something that so many mentors have continued to teach me was if you have a systems-based approach that people can engage with, it's going to change <laughs> based on the symptoms. It's, it's definitely going to change. But if you, if you have a trackable, measurable way to provide an option for that person, it's your responsibility to make sure they know what that option is and how they engage with it is up to them. Yeah. Well, and I would say too, what's, what resonated for me with that was, I have a really high success rate. And I say that not in a bragging sense, but I've had other clinicians are like, how is your success rate so high? Like, what are you doing differently? Mm -hmm. And I have no idea exactly what I'm doing differently. But one thing that my patients always tell me I do differently is that I'm flexible for them. So Mm -hmm. I always like to say, I like to meet the patient where they are, right? So I'll have a patient and they'll have every single eye movement wrong with them, but they're also a single parent working three jobs and the likelihood they're actually going to be able to do enough vision therapy to get better quickly is really low. And so I'll have patients and and I'll say, okay, well, what time could you dedicate? And maybe that means we work on one eye movement at a time, two times a week, and you're doing it at home for five minutes, right? So it's how can we work around your life so you can actually get better? And you understand that you're going to get better slower because you're obviously not doing as much as we might want you to do, but you're not doing nothing. And I think that's the part I think is when I've, when I give, and that's my model is how much can you do? And, and if you can't do that much, let's, let's figure out what we can do. And a lot of patients say it's so nice because most people have these rigid models, right? Like you need to come in two to three times a week. So how are you going to come in two to three times a week? And with the cognition piece as well, sometimes as much as with a vision lens, I want to fix the vision problem. Sometimes that's not the most important problem for the patient. In which case then it's like, okay, well, we need this, but maybe you need A, B, and C first. In which case, let's have you start there and come back and see me when you're ready for this part. Particularly yeah, I love that. Piece, right? Yeah, I love that. If you can't remember anything, it's going to be really hard to do my stuff. Well, so, and a lot of people don't even realize that it's possible. Like, I think that's the part that that I feel like sometimes I'm, I'm pushing a rock up a, up a hill every day is, you know, a lot of cognitive rehab is completely compensatory in nature, meaning, you know, steering around some of the underlying root cause in some cases, failing to recognize that in in many cases is an option to try more capacity building based programs that may not get you to pre-baseline, you know, pre-injury or pre-illness, but will be able to help you to increase your baseline and then surely when needed, compensate around some things, but with a higher ceiling at that time cognitively. And that's really my mission is in this work is to try to exhaust that potential and help people understand that it is possible. <laughs> it's, the, it's not always, it's going to take effort, but it is absolutely possible like anything. And in, in physical rehab, as you said, it's everywhere in physical rehab. And it's awesome. It's so awesome. I love it. Now let's get this other side up because the brain controls the body. So we need to 
acknowledge and recognize that change is absolutely possible there as well. Yeah. Well, and and I don't know where there was that misnomer that came out that the brain stops learning, you know, like who at some point was like, well, this is what you got. Good luck to you. I never understood that concept. And, and I said that even when I got, so you mentioned, I had a bunch of concussions as a kid and they're like, well, this is kind of how it is. And I'm like, well, that makes no sense. Why would I go to college and go learn stuff if my brain can't learn, you know? hundred <laughs> percent. And that, that was what tied you and I together when I was talking about in university suffering this, this bad concussion that, you know, when I tore the ACL, everything was very clear and functional. And a lot of it was in my charge. I had to do it. I was told what the work was, if there was surgical you know, stuff needed, but then I had to do the rehab and the rehab was very much active. And then with the concussion, it's like, okay, take some rest and here's some pills. And it's kind of like, but but what about the whole ACL rehab thing? Like, what, what about that thing? What about, what about the active piece to that? That seems so passive. And I always wondered to, to myself, it was a big question in the back of my mind that, that really worried me. It didn't make sense. And then when I met some of my mentors, like Barbara Aerosmith Young and Howard Eaton and many others, were learning through good research and good, and good clinical programming that it, it's, it's very much possible. You know, whether it's an anoxic drug overdose, whether it's, you know, concussion, multiple concussions, whether it's stroke, recovery can be possible. Is it the same for everybody? Absolutely not. Is everybody's roadmap the same and programming the same? Absolutely not. (laughs) It takes being able to pick up the phone, like you said, and call the people who do it maybe slightly differently and ask them that question and have that help to inform the advice you provide to that patient. Yeah, absolutely. I think also just giving hope. I think there's something, and that's the one thing that we always say is, you know, there's no benefit to the patient in taking their hope away. <laughs> like, well, this is your life and that's it. And there's nothing, you have no control over it. You know, the, and that's what you're doing. You're taking their own control out of their own hands when you're putting them in a dark room and saying like, cross your fingers, hope you get better. And the beauty now is I think that's changing, especially with like light sensitivity. We know that actually staying away from light makes it worse. So you need to feel a little worse to feel better, but you can feel better. A hundred percent. And, and I think that I, I like what you said around hope because I think that, well, you know me, I'm a pretty optimistic guy. So I like to believe that people are doing the best that they can with what they've got. Right. But there is a, a recent book that came out. It's basically the book of hope. And it's a journalist that spent some time with Jane Goodall, who I think is a pretty amazing human being on this earth. And she understands hope. (laughs) And apparently there's a whole field of study on on hope studies, which I think is really interesting. Because I've always been curious about the concept of hope because I don't like the idea of airy-fairy, like not realistic hope. I've never really kind of like, even the thought of that upsets me a bit because I want it to be realistic, right? But Apparently, with hope, that's why I'm pulling up my notes here, there was four components from the hope research in the literature. Okay. And that was realistic goals. Let's un- unpack what realistic means. Right? So you'll but, accept that one. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> realistic pathways. And then I think the inter- interesting one is a sense of agency and confidence and social support. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting when you think about it that way. Also understanding that there's going to be obstacles, but are you willing to do what it takes? To help to realize some of that hope. And the hard part is the social support, I think, for some people. Absolutely. I think that can be the, the hardest part is if you are on your own and isolated, which everyone obviously got to experience the last two years. Mm-hmm. And I've had a lot of patients where they've had, you know, chronic brain injury for a few years. And they're like, it's kind of nice that the rest of the population gets to feel what I've had my life feel like for years. 
you know, everyone's complaining about being in quarantine. They're like, welcome to having photophobia. <laughs> like, I can't yeah. leave my house, you know, or, or being sound sensitive. So, and, and I think there's a social network to that too. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think the social is often, you know, written off unfairly. I, I think it's so important to have a sense of community and support. Now, I mean, on this topic of hope, you know, when you think about the world of brain health, what is your hope for the future in this work and in this field? Uh, not maybe in optometry, but in brain health in general. Oh man, I have big hopes for this. So number one, it's going to be more interdisciplinary care and expedition of referrals. So we know the sooner we can get people into rehab, the sooner we get it better. As a rehab professional, the faster I can get someone better. That means the more I can open up spots to see more people, you know? So it's just yeah. like, if we can increase referrals, I think people are so worried to send someone somewhere and it's, no, they'll get better faster and get on with their life. And that's such a wonderful thing. I think exploring how the eyes, I mean, obviously I'm biased as an Of course, no, it's good. How the eyes really can actually be a window to brain health is going to be so interesting as it comes down the pipeline. So there's been a bunch of interesting studies looking at biomarkers in the retina that have mm. been shown to be precursors to chronic traumatic encephalopathy or Parkinson's mm. disease before it shows up in the brain. And the eyes are a non-invasive structure that we can visualize. So we can do things without an MRI, we can look inside the eyes. And I think that's so cool. And we haven't even really tapped that yet. And same with eye movements, right? So the eyes are this beautiful biomarker that I think people have overlooked and it'll be really neat to see how it gets implemented and how we can use the eyes kind of as a, a system for the brain. I love it. That's so cool. So for people that are listening, obviously, you know, you're a clinician, you're in the Virginia area, you kind of got recruited to head east. For people who want to reach out to you, maybe they've, they've got a relative, a loved one, maybe they themselves have some questions for you and they want to reach out, they want to learn how to get some of the support that they need. How do they reach you? Sure. So, uh, well, the first thing I say is, unfortunately, because sometimes I'll get emails and I can't answer them. And that's always hard for me because there's state line issues with our licenses. So people need to understand when you email a clinician, a very specific question, we actually legally cannot write you back. I can't diagnose you. I can't advise you. If it's across a state line, I can't email you. Right. A lot of weird legalities with that broad and general questions, we can kind of guide you in the topic of a little bit. So that being said, I have a website, www.virginianeurooptometry.com. We have social stuff where I post, whenever I read an article that I think is interesting, I'll post it on my social media thinking other people might think it's interesting too. So if you want a bunch of random PubMed articles in your feed, then that's, that's a good way to have it. And then if you're looking for a provider that does what I do in your area. So if you Google Neuro Optometric Rehab Association, NORA, there is a find a provider there. And that's usually, because some people will email me like, hey, who does what you do and whatever. And I usually just go into that website and Google Kansas or whatever. So you can go to that website and look up a neuro optometrist that way, which is really helpful, I think, because we are a very small group. And I think that can also be frustrating is residency-wise, when I graduated my residency, there were four residencies in the country. Now there's 10, but that just means that we're getting 10 of us a year. And a lot of those, the extra six residencies are actually in the VA. And a lot of them will stay in the VA because there's so much brain injury in the VA. So is the field growing? Absolutely. But there's such a big need that sometimes that can be hard to find. 
Okay. So um, the other one that I think is helpful, and we'd mentioned it, but we overlap a lot with vestibular PT. And so right. the Vestibular Disorder Association is also another really great resource for people. So if you don't have a neurooptometrist in your area, maybe you have an amazing vestibular PT who can get you, you know, better as well. So I think those are good caveats. Obviously, as I mentioned, they're separate. So you can plateau in one, right? And Mm -hmm. need the other. So I always say, if someone kicked you out of rehab because they couldn't get you any better, try the other one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) No, that's wonderful. And just thank you. I love the energy you bring to this work. I think it's awesome. I commend you for your passion for this. I love how you followed it. And you knew what you wanted and you just made it happen. I think there's a lot to be learned there in this work. And, you know, I just thank you for spending time with us today. This is very informative. I'm sure, you know, the past will cross again. Thank you so, so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the BEARS platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Uh, Training is very accessible and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neurorehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support and we'll see you on the next episode. made regarding the BEARS platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the BEARS platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The BEARS platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.